Have you ever wanted to be part of an exclusive club, you know, an exclusive membership club? You're probably thinking, no, not really. Well, if not, let me try to sell you on the Yellowstone Club in Montana, okay? This is in Big Sky, Montana, near Big Sky Resort. Got some amazing benefits if you're part of the Yellowstone Club. This exclusive 13,600-acre club has year-round amenities for members. It has a ski resort in the wintertime and a golf course in the summertime. They tout themselves as being the only exclusive private ski and golf club in the world. Pretty amazing. Not far from us. In the winter, you can ski by accessing 15 different chairlifts, three different lodges, and 2,200 acres. Huge. And because it's exclusive, there are almost no lines for their lifts. If anybody has gone uh, this winter skiing, you realize the lines are getting long. In the summer, you can golf 18 holes on the course designed by renowned uh, course designer Tom Weisskopf. If you're a golfer, that means a lot to you. For me, it doesn't mean anything. But he's a pretty famous course designer from what I understand. There is private security at this place. It's headed by a former uh, Secret Service agent. So you don't have to bring your own bodyguards if you don't want to. You can just use their bodyguards. What about the homes there? Well, most homes include ski rooms with individual lockers, heated driveways, bunk rooms, and $5,000 boot dryers. Pretty nice. What does such exclusivity cost, though, you might ask? Okay, sounds great, but what is it going to cost me? Well, I'm glad you asked. You first have to purchase property, which starts at a cool $4 million for a condo or a house, $5 million. And they go up to $20 million, that's all. After purchasing your property, purchasing your property, then you have to do the membership application. That is only $400,000 to become a member. And then every year you have to continue that $40,000 to become a member, to stay a member. But you will have club membership fellowship with people like Tom Brady, Justin Timberlake, Jessica Biel, and Bill Gates. Yay. <laughs> and man, I thought my Costco membership was amazing, right? With the free samples are back. I had no idea what I was missing out on. So, well, if you're not sold on that, hopefully you're not. It's pretty amazing to be part of an exclusive club, from what I understand. Uh, I've not really ever been a part of that. Costco, the YMCA, that's as close as I get, right? Well, put those things aside. The thought of Yellowstone Club, as alluring as that might be, and even Costco and even the YMCA, because I'm here to tell you this morning about your membership privileges in the most exclusive club ever created. That's right. Access to that club is the most costly ever designed. And the benefits of this club membership are infinitely immeasurable, right? Of course, I'm talking about membership in the body of Jesus Christ. The membership and body of Jesus Christ is like a club membership. It's exclusive. It is costly, and the benefits are fantastic. This club was designed and built by our Heavenly Father himself. It's an exclusive club in which he has hand-selected the members to be in his club. And once you are in, you are treated as royalty. Not just simply a member, but you are treated as if you were one of the king's own children in this club. Not simply a member, but an heir. The price for entrance into this club is costly. It is brutal and it sounds gruesome, but it required a blood sacrifice to become part of this club. To become part of this club, a living sacrifice of the founder's own son was offered so that you could get in. Membership in this club has its privileges. It also has its responsibilities. It's not a passive membership, but an active one. And so you must participate to receive the blessings of membership in this club. Join me in Hebrews chapter chapter 10, verse 19, and I want to look this morning at three responsibilities you have 
as part of this exclusive club membership of God's kingdom, of God's holy saints, of the fellowship of the saints. Three particular responsibilities that you as a card-carrying, blood-bought, exclusive member must, must participate in. Those three exclusive responsibilities are that this first one. We must draw near to God. The second responsibility that we must do is we must hold fast to our confession of hope. And finally, we must consider stimulating others. I'll say that again. We must draw near to to God. We must hold fast to our confession. We must consider stimulating others. Now, as an aside, I will confess this to you. That outline would be a C- or a D in homiletics class, okay? Not a great outline, according to homiletics. I should have a plural noun proposition for you, uh, and it should be alliterated. All of those should rhyme and things like that, okay? So that would be kind of the way to get a good A. I could possibly do that. I, I might be able to come up with a B grade or even possibly an A grade homiletical outline for you, but this passage already gives us the outline. It's already right there for you. And so rather for, than me trying to give you some contrivance of uh, some sort of thought to be trickery, I would rather just have you memorize the scripture. Just hear what it says and stick with that. So in chapter 10, verse 22, it gives us these three commands. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second one, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And finally, the third membership we talk about, membership privilege. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. These are commands for the members of God's exclusive club. The author of Hebrews is interesting because he doesn't also follow a homiletical outline. He doesn't scream at you and say you, because that's what they taught us in seminary, is every point needs to be a you view. This is what you should do. But our writer of Hebrews doesn't do that. He does a hortatory conjunctive or a hortatory uh, imperative, which is this idea of we must It is us together. These hortatory subjunctives are saying, I am part of you. I am with you. I can't just simply tell you to do this, but we as members together must do this together. Draw near to God. Hold fast to the confession of our hope and stimulate one another on uh, to love and good deeds. So with that introduction about membership, let's look at the first responsibility of membership, and that's that we must draw near. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. This theme of drawing near is prevalent in Hebrews. It has the idea of literally, you know, approaching God with worship and service. We see this language several times through the book of Hebrews. So first this comes in Hebrews 4.16, which I read at the beginning of our service here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in Hebrews 7.18.19. For on the one hand, a former commandment, is set aside because of its weakness and usefulness, uselessness, sorry, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus has offered a better hope so we can draw near to God. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. (laughs) I love this imagery. 
I, I love this phrasing. I love that when this phrasing is used about drawing near to God, it always gives us a reason. Why can we do this? How can we do this? What has God done so that we can draw near to God? In chapter 4, the reason we can draw near, approach the throne of grace, is because we have a great high priest, Jesus. He is the one that sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is the one that intercedes for us. In Hebrews 7, we can draw near because we have a better hope than the old commandments, than the Old Testament sacrifices, than the old covenant. We have a better hope in Jesus. And here in 1022, we can draw near because of the work of Christ. That's what it says in uh, running backwards a little bit, as well as forward in 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, because Jesus has done this, we now have full access to the throne room of God. And then it talks about how we can do that as well. Sprinkled clean, I'll mention that in a moment. How can we do this? Verse 1019, I mentioned that. By the confidence of the blood of Jesus. What does this mean? A new and living way. Remember that the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people who are being tempted to go back to Judaism, to abandon what Jesus had done, or maybe to take what Jesus had done and add that to what Moses had commanded. So they were commanded, they were being coerced, they were being tempted to go back to this old way. But our writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. That is not the way that we have access to God. It is through this new and living way, which is Jesus, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that by his blood, his once for all sacrifice, made it accessible for us to come before God. And he was contriving or, or contradicting and comparing and contrasting consistently Jesus and the old covenant. Consistently, Jesus and the old priests. These old priestly ways were not good enough. Those priests had to offer their own sacrifices. Those priests were not perfect like Jesus is perfect. And so he made the perfect way for us. And we understand the gospel. That perfect, righteous life of Jesus substituted for us. Because of these two truths about Jesus, what he has done and who he is, we can accomplish these tasks of membership, beginning with drawing near to God. We can come to him because of the work of Jesus. But I think it is really imperative that you understand the restrictions to drawing near. We can't simply just barge into the throne room of God. He's a king. He is sovereign. He is master of the universe. He is the one who has all power at his hands. And it reminds me of Esther in the book of Esther and what happens there. So if you can find it, jump back with me to Esther chapter 5. And if not, I will read it for you. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. There's this interesting little anecdote. And if you know the story really fast, that there's this beauty pageant. Okay, there's this beauty pageant for the king because he's unhappy with his wife. And lo and behold, Esther becomes the winner of the beauty pageant. She becomes the new queen. Well, unbeknownst to most everybody else, she's actually a Jew. She's a, she's a descendant of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had placed her in a very particular time to preserve the Jewish nation at this time. But even as the queen, she didn't have immediate access to the king. He still was very protected, and nobody could come before him without permission. And so she has to make this request. She has to come to the king and ask for something. She's going to ask for a banquet, and in this banquet, she's going to ask for protection for her, for her people. But she can't just go knock on the door. So what does she do? Chapter 5 of Esther. 
On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. She had already won a beauty pageant, so we already know that she is gorgeous. And not not only does she uh, look pretty in face, but now she puts on these fancy clothing that makes her look even more alluring to the king. So she puts on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the place. She's trying to get his attention. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Why is this important? Because if Esther barged in, even to her own husband's throne room, she would be executed. That throne room was protected. That throne room was guarded. That throne room was exclusive. And you could only enter that throne room by the extension of the king's scepter, by him inviting her in to that specific place. We need to understand, friends, that's the same with our heavenly throne that we can approach. We can't go in willy-nilly. We can't go in because we have paid a certain amount. We can't go in because I've done good things. No, the king must extend to us an invitation. He must extend to us an offer. And believe it or not, the fantastic benefit that we have as members of this club is that's exactly what he has done. It's exactly what he has done. He has paid your membership price more than hundreds of thousands of dollars. He has paid your membership price and access to be able to come before him and you don't have to renew it every year. You don't have to do anything to continue this membership. You have to believe in his son and understand that his sacrifice is for you. And in that way, God now extends the scepter to us. He literally is inviting us into his presence, literally inviting us to come and fellowship with him and his pleasures. Using our club analogy, we don't even need to make an appointment to meet with the club president. We don't have to talk to his secretary to be able to do that or or sign up online. No, we get to talk to him at any time. We get to approach his throne of grace and we can tell him what we love about his club. We can tell him what we love about his club members. We can ask him for help in keeping the club great. We can ask him for help even in getting other people into the club. The access and the privileges of those access are amazing. And this passage back to Hebrews 10. How are we to draw near? Our author, our writer of Hebrews, tells us more specific details about this aspect. Yes, we do draw near. But then he tells us how we are to draw near or the means in which we can do this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, with a true heart, full of faith. Why can we draw near? Or again, how can this be the case for us? Because our hearts are sprinkled clean. Our bodies are washed. Not referring to baptism, uh, but spiritual renewal and sacrifice. He's writing this for us to understand and to remember the way that we can draw near is with a true heart. And how can we have a true heart? Because of faith in Christ. Full assurance of faith because of what the work that Jesus had done for us. Now, using another analogy of barging into a throne room, imagine that uh, your kids have been playing outside, not on a nice, warm summer day, but on a wet, spring, muddy day. Okay, They're playing around in the mud. They're all goopy and soppy and wet and yucky. And they come barging into the kitchen. 
Or even in your living room that's got the nice white carpet, right? You can, no, 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 you can't come in. What are you doing? Go back outside. I'm going to hose you down. That's kind of the idea here too. We cannot bring our impurities into the throne room of God. We can't bring all of our, our, our thoughts of this world and our sinful tendencies and just come into God's presence because he's going to see that in front of us. Imagine standing before your parents if you're a little child or, or your children standing before you all muddy and just standing there, what? What's going on? Our father says, look, you can come, but you must be clean first. Let me clean you up. Let me, let me deal with this sin for you so that you can enter into my presence with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, it's important to understand this. God chose this. Uh, God has chosen a particular way for us to enter into the throne room. He's made the rules for us. And he has forensically and litigiously chosen to cleanse us of our sin. Let me explain that. Forensically, he specifically made the law in such a way that our sins can be dealt with. He has litigiously, law, created a way that our sin can be removed from us. And as a wise and as a perfect and as a loving God, he made a way that wasn't costly to you in a sense. It was costly to his son. So he chose to allow the death of his perfect righteous son to substitutionarily stand in your place. He allowed for that death to be in your place because you have debt. You have death. You have sin that must be dealt with. And then he has chosen for you to be substituted and and propitiation. He has chosen for Jesus to be the one to be able to pay for the sin that is upon you. And so God could have maybe chosen other ways. He didn't tell us about other ways. He told us about this way. This is the way you have access to my throne room by the work of Christ. And it's the only way. We can't create any other way. We can't come up with any other means to come before God. We can't even try on our own means to do this, right? Like violent men trying to storm heaven. No, we must enter his gates, enter his throne room by the way that he is determined. And that determination was the sacrifice of his son. The perfect righteous life he lived, the horrific sacrificial death he died, and the resurrection to show the power that he has over sin and death. When we believe this, when we confess our sin to God, trusting that he will cleanse us and forgive us, we have our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed. God now sees us perfect. As he looks at us, we are all clean. We are as clean as his son because of the work of his son on the cross. And that gives us free access to the throne room. And we as members are expected to benefit of prayer. We're expected to use the access to God and to pray to him by drawing near to God. Okay, what's our second member responsibility? Second member responsibility is here in the text. It tells us that we are to hold fast to the confession. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith of hope without wavering. It means just like it sounds, but in a metaphorical sense, right? Uh, you can't physically hold on to your confession of hope. We're not with our physical hands. But we take the gospel, the message of Jesus, our Messiah, the hope that we can have peace with God through his perfect life and resurrection, and we hold to this tightly. We hold to this confession 
And whenever we come across a passage like this, the good Calvinist response is to say something like, this is the result of genuine faith or evidence of faith. It's not maintaining your salvation. This isn't you saving yourself or holding your salvation uh, on your own. Because, of course, you can't let go of your salvation. Once you're saved, you're truly always saved. And I fully agree and would not want to create any doubt about that in all your mind. However, 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 I think that there's some tension here that we need to sit with. There's some tension here that our author writes for us that we need to take seriously. Why would he say this if this isn't a serious threat? Why does the author of Hebrews write this? Because remember, his audience that he's writing to are people that were Jews, Hebrews, and they're being tempted to go back to that same way. And he says, no, 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 no. Hold tight to this confession of hope. Hold on to it. Do not let it go. Some of them had actually tasted of the heavenly gifts. And some of these people that he is writing to had actually experienced the amazing benefits of club membership. But then they fell away. Then they left. Why does our writer have these so-called warning passages throughout Hebrews if it wasn't a tension that believers had to struggle with? Why does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So from God's eternal perspective, from his sovereign will, from his uh, call, and his chosen people are absolutely secured, no question. If we look from the heavenly view, that's exactly what's going on. His chosen can never be unchosen. His chosen will never be able to leave. But from our perspective, it's a little different. From our side of heaven, it's more difficult because it seems to be that the writers of Scripture say things like this. You've got to guard that faith. You've got to protect that faith. You've got to preserve that faith. You've got to endure difficulties. You have to exercise, and you have to fight for your faith. Those are exactly the terms that our New Testament writers tell us about our faith. Guard it, protect it, preserve it, endure it, exercise it, and hold fast to our faith. Sit with that temptation, uh, that, that, that tension. I'm okay with you to sit and wrestle with that. Wait, wait, wait. Sovereignty of God. Wait, wait, wait. I'm supposed to do something about this? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and rest on that. Meditate on that. Think about that. Again, I will say it. It's okay for you to wrestle with this tension that the inspired writers give to us. Maybe here's a picture. Pictures on these things are really difficult because they're never perfect. But have you ever been ziplining? Anybody here been ziplining? Quick show of hands. Yeah. Now, if you're not deathly afraid of heights, it's a huge rush. It's really fun. If you're deathly afraid of heights, don't do it because you'll die because you're way high up, right? It's pretty fun. It's a great adrenaline pumping experience. I mean, it, you get to experience what's going on and it's fun. And it's beautiful, usually in pretty, pretty amazing places. We've had the opportunity to do a couple times. Even if you are a little afraid of heights, though, you are usually clutching to anything you possibly can until you finally get the hang of it. You're, you're climbing up the ladder, and you're just gripping that thing with all that you have. And then they, find, they buckle you in, and you're buckled in really the whole time. And you know, you realize, I've got this harness. I've got this buckle. If, even if I let go and fall, maybe I'll just get bumped or bruised a little, but I'm not going to be in any mortal danger. But you're still holding on for dear life, right? And that first little zip, you're like, eee! You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere, but you've got that harness, but you're still clutching on. Maybe in a way, that's a potential picture of God has his believers harnessed. He's not going to let you go, but we are still supposed to hang on. And almost like if somebody was not hanging on, ragdoll sort of thing, they could really get beat up. 
they swung around, run into trees and stuff like that, uh, hurt yourself in that manner. Again, it's not a perfect analogy, but we think about that. Hold on to the faith. Hold on to this hope that we have. Don't let it go. Protect it. Embrace it. Serve others by helping them do the same thing. So the first membership responsibility we have is to draw near to the king. The second one is to hold fast the confession of hope in God. And the final membership responsibility is to consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate, uh, how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those first two responsibilities are mostly focused on the individual. It's like, what, what are you to do between you and God? Uh, with your own faith in that sense, draw near to God and then hold on to it. But it's important to see that the result of the work of Christ will be seen in how we treat other people, how we serve other members in this exclusive club. That sort of doctrinal foundation that we've seen by the work of Jesus leads to the multitude of commands that happen in the rest of Hebrews. This is really the transition to the third section of Hebrews, where in the beginning it's all about Jesus. It's all about how he's a better sacrifice. It's all about he is a better uh, a, a better priest for us. He is the way that we are supposed to engage and enter into the kingdom of God. Now, going forward, because of what Jesus has done, this is what it looks like to now be in this membership uh, club for us. This, these are the ways that we are to serve and to love others and to love God. So 13 or 10 through following, uh, the latter final chapters of Hebrews are much more application in that way. And that's what we see here, that this is kind of the introduction to what's going to happen in the latter chapters of Hebrews and sections. I think it's interesting to note that the main verb here is you're supposed to contemplate. It's kind of interesting because the other ones are, are very uh, you know, specific, draw, near, direct, hold, fast. Here, the verb is, let us consider. That's an interesting thought. But consider doesn't end there. It's not just simply contemplation, because we're supposed to consider something. And it's not just simply thinking about. It's a more specific, uh, carefully envisaged thinking. It's perceiving, action of the mind, apprehending certain facts. It's contemplating but what are we supposed to contemplate? Again, we're supposed to contemplate something kind of interesting. We're supposed to contemplate how to stimulate. Again, it's almost three different verbs before we finally get to what we're supposed to do. Consider, consider how to stimulate others onto love and good deeds. So consider how to stimulate. This is a fun word. Stimulate. It means to agitate or provoke. And it's often used in a negative way, consistently a negative way. It's sometimes even irritate irritate somebody to exasperation. And it can even mean like a severe fit of a disease. The Greek word is paroxysmos, where we get the English word paroxysm. It's like a fit or an attack, right? I, mean, I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but what's, what's a paroxysm in any of our health uh, officials? What, what is that? Like a, it's a fit, right? A fit of coughing, coughing can be that way or even a, a seizure. So this odd word is used negatively to try to bring about a positive aspect. We're supposed to agitate one another to love and good deeds. We're supposed to irritate people 
It's kind of an odd way to say that. We're supposed to be around somebody and one another in such a way we're poking them in the chest. And maybe I'll see that, guys and gals, you know, poking their spouses. See, that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're agitating people on to this particular purpose. Here's a positive image with a negative connotation about how this looks. Camping time, right? When it's not in a severe drought, we have campfires. You guys like campfires, right? You love the smell of it. You like the, the, the heat of it, the warmth of it. I know it's been a while since we've had one because we have these fire bands. But what happens when you've got little kids and you have campfires? Schmores. That's right. I heard it. Schmores. That's what we have. Uh, campfire, schmores. I mean, how could it go wrong? You got little kids, you got sticks, you got fire, and you got lava hot molten sugar. Great combination, right? Uh, yeah, those molted marshmallows start on the stick, but then they get on the fingers as they're making the stuff, right? We, we visit our house, put it, smash it together, youth group, and then they eat it, and then where's that glue now? It's all over the face, right? Man, when I was camping as a little kid, I would wake up in the middle of the night, it's like, Schmores. I have it between my toes. How do I have marshmallow between my toes in my sleeping bag? I don't know if you guys know. I hate schmores. I hate marshmallows. I really do. But I love fires. I love fires. Because to get the good marshmallows molten, what you have to do is you got to get good coals. How do you get those good coals? You have to agitate that fire. You have to stir up that fire. You have to, you have to take the logs and you got to push them away in such a way that you've got the heat exposed to the elements there. And that's what we do with one another. Somehow we are to consider, we are to contemplate one another in such a way that when we gather, we are agitating one another on to love and good deeds. It takes contemplation. It takes work. It takes thought. It takes planning. And again, I've mentioned it already, but what are we agitating towards? Two things. Love, good deeds. Love is interesting because love needs an object. It's not simply an emotion. Some people will say that. I, I, but, but we don't generally do that. I mean, uh, how are you feeling today? Tired? Hungry? Love. You don't just feel love, right? has to have an object specifically. What do you love? You've got to love something. What's the greatest command? What are we supposed to love? Love God and love others. And I think that's the application here too. We're supposed to agitate, stimulate, motivate one another on to loving God and loving others. And to good deeds. As a result of loving God and loving others, we're going to do things about that. We're going to serve God in specific ways and we're going to serve others in specific ways too. The application for this, for the members, it means that we stir up love and good deeds in one another. And how does this apply? This is interesting in section two. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together. So there's a negative aspect, but positively. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The application for this is that we're supposed to meet together. We're supposed to meet together and press one another on to love and good deeds. Priest-like vacation, right? I mean, no, no. In all seriousness, joking aside, vacation happens. Uh, but in all seriousness, you do need to consider this. 
Do you make lifestyle choices that hinder you from gathering consistently with the body? We had to do this as, as a family with young kids in sports. They want you to play tournaments every single weekend. And that was difficult for us. Uh, is this really the life that we want to have? Is this really the model we want to present to our children? Yes, we want them to compete. We want them to be involved in fun things. We want them to grow. But do we really want to miss church a quarter of the year, 16 weeks gone? I don't know if that's what we want to do. So you can't stir up one another. You can't motivate one another to love and good deeds if you're not in fellowship, if you're not gathering together. Again, obviously, vacation happens, sickness happens, COVID happens, stuff like that. But on a habit, we must consistently guard gathering together. Gathering together. It's Sunday mornings for sure, but it's also midweek fellowship and things like that. So... And when you gather, what you're supposed to do is encourage one another. Put courage in. Uh, motivate others in love and good deeds. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It was near in their day. And don't be skeptical about this. It's near in our day too. Look around. You can see that we are in the end times. You can see and understand judgment is coming. God's wrath will come upon those who are not his members of his fellowship. It will come, and we see bits and pieces of that judgment on people who have already forsaken the scriptures, who have already forsaken the way that God has asked. We see that judgment here, but a greater judgment is coming. And so we're supposed to encourage one another. Hold on to the faith. Draw near to God. Stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. So an interesting, I love this passage. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It takes some consideration. It takes some time. It takes some thought. It takes some effort to do this last thing. You know who I think is good at this? My wife. My wife, Connie. I think Connie is really good at this. She wants to come to church early. And I hold her back from that sometimes. It's like, ah, I want to sleep in. But she wants to come to church early because she wants to be with you all. She wants to talk with you and she wants to find out how you're doing so she can pray for you. So she can fellowship with you. So she can know what's going on in your life. And she wants to stay afterwards. But I want to go do things sometimes because I've used my gift already. But she wants to stay in fellowship and encourage and, and help others. <laughs> And what I'm amazed by is how much information she can get by fellowshipping with people and talking with people. I remember one time I was preaching at a camp, and we had only been there for like dinner time, and I think I had done one message, and we were wrapping up the day, and you know, we'd only been there a couple hours. And Connie's like, wow, do you know what's going on in this church? I mean, they're having difficulties with the pastor, and the associate pastor is doing this, and this, and this. I'm like, how did you get all that information? I talked with the associate's wife. You mean like in the bathroom when you were in there for 10 minutes? You got all of that in 10 minutes? I hadn't even gotten past the weather with these guys, you know? And, and that's her gift. She loves doing that. She's able to, to communicate with people and move them on to loving good deeds in that conversation. You know who else is good at considering how to stimulate others? Uh, it might embarrass her, so I, I don't want to give her name necessarily, but her name rhymes with Claire Sanchez. So, uh, <laughs> in our youth group, Claire, you do this a lot. I see this consistently. She consider, she doesn't just show up and serve, and that's what we do a lot of times. We show up and serve, but she brings gifts to people. She writes notes to people. I even saw her today giving a note to somebody. She was already considering somebody else, planning to motivate this person on to love and good deeds. And that's what we need to do throughout our week. I, I, I mean... I'll be frank, as I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking about many of you by name. I'm thinking, how can my words hopefully motivate them on to love and good deeds? And that's what we need to do throughout the week as we're praying for one another, as we're planning to see one another. We can think about, 
what are some good conversations I can have with this person? And I said this with our youth group, we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. We all have different ways of doing that. For some, some people, it is gifts. Give a gift, give a card, write a note. For some people, like me, it's, it's exhortation. I preach the word. I share the gospel with people. I share the scriptures with people, and that's how I move others on. For some, it's acts of service. So for you, you have to figure out who you are so that you know how you can stimulate others to love and good deeds. Learn your gifting. Learn how God has made you because he's put you in this membership on purpose. None of you are accessories. All of you are imperative to be here. And you have to figure out how God has asked you to be here. And so if you're like me, I don't do well with just hanging out. <laughs> hanging out events are not my favorite sort of thing. You know, hey, here's a party. Let's come hang out. Like, what are we going to do? Birthday parties are cool because you know eventually there's going to be cake and eventually there's going to be ice cream and eventually there's going to be presents and stuff like that. So you know there's an agenda. But just hanging out is hard for me. I-, I need to have an agenda. That's me. That's who I am. So I understand that. So when I go to an event, I have to plan that. Some of you are the same way. Some of you just love hanging out and just chatting and, and informally you can do that. But you need to know who you are and what your gifts are so that you can motivate others on to love and good deeds. What's your particular bent? How do you best agitate others on to these particular things? Pray about that for yourself. Consider that for yourself. And I'm going to take just a moment of silence now as we close our service because now we're with one another for the rest of our time in worship. How can you, even specifically today, use that bent to motivate somebody on to love and good deeds? There's a, a whole host of ways you can do that. Share a Bible verse with somebody. Ask somebody how you can pray for them. Even pray with somebody today after service, potentially. Share a meal with them. There's so many different ways that we can do this, but I want to do this now. As I pray, I'm just going to have a moment of silence. And who would God put on your heart that you could go and talk with even today? What specific words or conversations can you have to encourage them to love and good deeds? Sometimes that may even be a confrontation. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the exclusive membership we have with you in your kingdom and the ways that you have made access for us to be able to come before you to the throne of grace with boldness, to be able to come to you to draw near with true hearts and full assurance of what you have done. Thank you so much that we can hold fast to this. I'm also thankful that it's not left to our own power or ability to hold fast because if my salvation was up to me to keep, I would lose it. If it was up to me to hold and to save myself, I would not be saved. And so I am so grateful that we have the promises that you've given to us of your ability to save us. And Lord, I'm thankful that you want us to love one another. And I do pray that as we go from here, you would uh, motivate, you would stimulate, you would agitate, you would help put in the mind of one another how to love one another, how to serve and to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Amen.